Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Young or Dumb. We have a new guest that I will let introduce themselves. Hello, hello, everybody. So my name is Jordan. I am an LPC, which stands for Licensed Professional Counselor in the state of Illinois. So I'm currently a therapist right now. LPC? Mm-hmm. Licensed, what was the second word? Licensed Professional Counselor. Welcome to Younger Dumb. My name's Mariana, and I'm interested in learning a variety of topics. But the thing is, I'm not much of a reader. Join me as I interview a mix of people in different careers or topics to see if I'm just new to adulting and haven't learned this stuff yet, or if I should have known this information already. Professional, licensed professional counselor. I'm just going to say counselor because I'm really bad at acronyms and stuff, especially when it's like not my job. Just, just you wait until we get into uh, what it takes to become. There's so much like clinical jargon oh it's a lot also quick rant i am not a fan of how counselor is spelled uh i i like typed it in like the zoom link that i sent you and i was like oh that looks wrong and i had to like double check it compared to your linkedin profile so many times before i felt confident sending that like i just it's just weird it's just not for me you know that's okay. If it makes you feel better, you can also use therapist. I feel like they're super interchangeable. Therapist is easier to spell. Yeah, they're super interchangeable. I mean, there's a couple ways that you can get to like this role. Um, but like technically my job title is therapist. So they're very interchangeable. Is there an actual difference? Like if I look it up in a dictionary? Um it depends on the context. Um, a really good example is like right now at my job, we've got um, all of our like official roles are therapists, but we've got people with backgrounds in counseling, people in backgrounds with social work, and then people in backgrounds with like marriage and family therapy. But you can do all of the same things pretty much. There's no like real difference in um there's no real difference in like scope of practice um, unless you're going into like a different setting. But as long as you're qualified, there's a lot of degrees or paths that you can take to get to what would be a therapist position or a counselor position. But I don't think there's much of a difference in terms of what we do at the end of the day with clients. Yeah. So what kind of education do you have? Um, so I've got a bachelor's in psychology. Um, you don't need a bachelor's in psychology. You can have a bachelor's in something totally different. Um, the important part for this role is your master's. Um, I have a master's in clinical mental health counseling. Um, like I said, that's not the only master's that you can get. You can also do this with a, uh, a master's degree in school counseling. You can also do this with a master's in social work. And then you can also do, I'm not entirely sure what that master's would it be but the marriage and family therapist we have her letters are lmft which is licensed marriage family therapist um so her master's is in i think she's got like a master's of family and marriage therapy mm-hmm. so is the master's you don't need like a doctorate you do not could you get one so you can um when i was kind of ending when i was finishing up my master's degree i was considering it and after i talked to some people the common thread was they called this a what like a terminal degree um meaning that like if you were to want to get your phd or your doctorates 
it wouldn't necessarily advance your like clinical practice. People that get their PhDs typically will teach. And so like, for example, at NIU, their PhD program is um, how to teach. And so it teaches, it's like counseling supervision and education. And so it teaches you how to teach counselors. Um, and so people usually get their PhD to teach um, that you don't really have to have it if you just want to continue practicing clinically. Do you want to teach? I wouldn't mind it, Mariana. But you know what? I've actually been thinking a lot about going back to school for medicine. Mm, a doctor. Um, Doctor adjacent. <laughs> So, okay. <laughs> and I, I'm still learning myself and like, obviously I'm not in school or anything, but, um, I've been looking a lot into, um, nurse practitioner, which is another master's degree, um, or physician's assistant, which is another master's degree too. They're both, um, medical oriented though. And you can prescribe medicine with both of those degrees. Did you want to do that because of your current job? Like it in kind of inspired you? Yeah, partially. Um, so as a counselor slash therapist, I do a lot of the like talk therapy, right? And so I'm here to help you process things. I'm here to help give you tools to process things. Um, but there's also a medical side of psych, right? There's like the actual medicine side. What I have found in working like out in the actual field is that because the medicine side of psych follows a medical model instead of like a counseling or social work model, it's a lot more like medicine focus, which makes sense um, at face value. But a lot of times people's feedback to that is, and it's so funny because even now I just um, had a conversation with another individual and they were talking about how their experience, but it's it's pretty universal about how their experience with medicine is has been like more in and out versus like, let's talk about this. And so oftentimes people who are getting you know, medicine for depression or medicine for anxiety, don't really know what they're taking, don't really know what they're doing. Um, and I always tell people that medicine, we think of it like a science and it is a science, but it's also an art because you have to find medicine that works for your body, your body chemistry um, and your symptoms, right? And that's not always a one and done thing, but it's really like typically an in and out thing. Um, and so I'd love to, at the end of the day, marry the two because I have the talk therapy experience. And so I would love to be the prescriber that says, hey, this is why I'm giving you this. This is what this does. And this is how it will affect you. And this is the game plan, right? This is not a fix, right? It's a, it's hopefully a fix, but if not, like, this is what we'll do after. We might change your medicine, we might increase, decrease your dosage. Mm -hmm. um, but like I said, often I have people that come in and they're like, I have no idea what I'm taking. I went in there for five minutes. They changed something. Do I know what it is? No. Um, and so I think that's a really big issue really in, in the psych mental health field. So you can't prescribe medicine? I cannot currently prescribe medicine right now, but if I went to get an NP, which is nurse practitioner degree or a physician's assistant degree, I could. So what happens like if I go to therapy and I have really bad anxiety, do they have to then tell my doctor that I should get anxiety medicine? Mm -hmm. So what happens is it depends on where you go. Some places do both counseling and the medicine side of things. And so, for example, like where I work, we have a prescriber on site. And so you don't really need to go anywhere. You can just kind of come here and do it all. Um, but if I were someplace, like my last job didn't have a prescriber on site. And so I had to always refer out. Um, but we can coordinate and collaborate. And so I can call your psychiatrist and say, hey, this is what I've been noticing. Um, you know, what would you maybe give someone for these symptoms? Now you have that background information. Um, and I guess that kind of fills in the role of the talk piece that 
you know, I said doesn't really exist because they can't sit there and, you know, gather information from me for two hours, but I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really a collaboration. Does that not break confidentiality? They have to be willing to sign what is called a release of information. Mm-hmm. Um, if they're external, if they're, it's internal, like where I am right now, then they sign for all of the services. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's external, they have to be willing to sign that, which some people don't. I think I would. I mean, yeah, I mean, and it very much depends on on you, right? And where you want to go and how you want to get there. Medicine is not for everyone, but it's for some people. Yeah, that's true. So where you work right now, do you work with a certain group of people? Like you mentioned the one like his marriage. Is there like... Sorry. Yeah, so in my role right now, I work uh, specifically with teens, and so I do 13 through 18. Um, and then I right now do both substance use and mood disorders. And so things like alcohol, um, you know, marijuana, um, like benzodiazepines, things like that on the substance use side. And then on the mood disorder side, things like anxiety, depression. So do you choose to go into those fields or did you kind of just get, get placed wherever you found a job at? Um. I, so my first job was mostly mood focused, but we needed a certain percentage of substance use folks. And so although I didn't want to do substance use initially, I had to on my first job, but I found a little bit of a love for it. It was very surprisingly a population that I enjoyed working with. Um, For this job specifically, I happened to be the last person to be hired. And so I got put into a substance use role um, but the cool thing about our substance use program here is that it's a what's called a dual diagnosis program. And so they have to have a mood disorder and a substance use disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it works out that I still got to do what I wanted to do originally. And I got to do something that I, you know, initially didn't think I was going to like, but I really kind of fell in love with. You like the ages that you have too? I do. I wanted to work with teens. I really wanted to work with teens. Um, on my last job, it was through the lifespan. And teens are so hard to keep because they don't really want to come to therapy most of the time. They're really hard to keep. They have to have some type of buy-in. Mm-hmm. Um, and this program, maybe because we're like a dedicated teen program, um, and because it's a little bit of a higher level of care, um, it's a lot... I hesitate to use the word easier, but it's a lot... There's a lot more like longevity in the program participation length. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they come for like three sessions and then they're done. They can, it's like continuous for as long as they need or they want. So, and just to get, so let me give you a little bit of background information. When you're talking about the counseling and therapy, there's what's called levels of care. Um, Your lowest level of care is regular outpatient. That's like what usually people are, referring to when they talk about therapy or counseling. So your outpatient level of care is just your typically one time per week, one hour, and that's for as long as you need it. Some people go for a year, some people go for 10 years. It's kind of at your discretion and your clinician's discretion. Um, And then you get to intensive outpatient, which is what I'm at right now. Um, That's your second level. Um, Typically, it's for people that need a lot more elbow grease, have a lot more severe symptoms. And so there's a lot more time that goes into intensive outpatient level of care. Um, My program specifically, we do um, four days a week and they come about three hours every day. 
Um, Four days a week. Yep, and that's only level two. Wow. There's no level to that. Um, Not in so school. they come. Um, we do after school. Um, so there are programs that do during school, and typically those programs have a like a school component built in. Um, like I knew someone that had previously gone into a, he had previously been in a. on a program and he got a GED out of it. And so some programs do have like a school component, um, but ours is after school. Um, after IOP, you get to PHP, which is partial hospitalization. these Um, are all and the acronyms you were talking about earlier. PHP is like your third level, um, but it's still outpatient. So you get to go home at the end of the day. Um, same thing, people with more intense symptoms, people that need a little more care. Um, for us, our PHP is five days a week, five hours a day. Um, and then after that, you get to residential level of care
Yeah. I probably need therapy, but we're... I don't think therapy. <laughs> I, I do think, think yeah. Therapy. <laughs> I've, I've gone. I don't think I found the right therapist, and maybe that's why I don't go anymore. But and that's a big thing. That's a really huge thing, Mariana. Um, when you decide, or anybody really decides to go to therapy, fit is a really good is a really big thing because if you don't vibe with your therapist counselor, you're not going to get the work done. They really have to be able to resonate with like, your lived experiences. You really have to be able to establish that rapport with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if not, it's oftentimes not going to work. You really have to kind of shop around in a sense and find the right therapist for you. Do you get offended if if people say that you're not their type? I do not. I I applaud them, actually, because that can be a really hard thing to do. I think that a lot of times people don't realize that they sometimes need to shop around. Um, And if I'm not the right fit, I want to hear that from you because then I want to help you find the right fit. Mm. Do you have... I have multiple questions. That's okay. Go ahead. I'll start with this one, kind of backtracking. You said that there's certain like tactics and stuff that people within residential in the hospital learned. Do you have different tactics tactics that you learned for just being with the patients that you have? Like, is there specific training once you get your degree to work with each kind of like group? You know what, Mariana? There are... I think more in terms of population specific trainings, mm-hmm. like I had to take, you know, for example, like a, a family therapy class and I had to take like a children's class, um, but not for levels of care. And it wasn't really until I graduated and was job searching that I realized that there were levels of care. Um, and like thinking about it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because you need, you know, there's no there's no like, black or white. It's not only hospitalization, only outpatient. Like you need those intermediate levels of care, but it really wasn't talked about. It really wasn't until I started looking for jobs that I was like, this makes sense. Mm-hmm. Do you think it should have been taught? I think it 1000% should have been taught because then I would have definitely been able to make a better informed decision on what type of job I wanted to look for, right? Um, some people are okay with outpatient some people want outpatient some people prefer that one-on-one um therapy and other people prefer like a hospital setting or residential setting right um so I think it very often depends on what the clinician wants to do um and it and even like your question um I think there should have been a lot more training on it because I think you're very right there's different ways of conducting therapy in different um levels of care um, and the higher up you go, the more groups you're going to see, the more acuity you're going to see. And so I think that's 1000% something that could have been taught, but wasn't. And maybe they do in other places, but I did not learn that. in my <laughs> Do you think, no, that's not what I want to say. In your classes, what were you learning? Like, what was the majority of your topics? Sure. Um, I feel like it was a lot of like foundations work and then specific populations work and so I had so many classes I try not to think about school anymore <laughs> um but okay, you want to so go I, get your I, master's I know Another I'm, master's. A for, I'm a glutton for punishment mm-hmm. um the first class that I remember taking was an ethics class because I think there's a lot of ethics and you need to know about ethics that goes into therapy and counseling right because at the end of the day 
or medical really like anyone else. Um, and so you need to learn that foundation. Um, there was a lot of history that went into, I would say, my classes because the therapies that we learn are very different from the therapies that were used, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, it's changed a lot. And as a matter of fact, as I'm talking, one of the things that, you know, you asked about if I was taught, one of the things that I really wasn't taught about was a current, more current way to do therapy. Um, we do a lot of focusing on older modalities, but I think in practice, um, we're really DBT, CBT focused right now. Um, so like dialectical behavior therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, that is what's really popular in the field right now. And that wasn't, like that could have been its own class for mm -hmm. sure. Um, but that wasn't a class. Um, I did get a group class. I did get an individual therapy class. I got a child class. I had a family systems class. I got a school counseling class. I had a research class. Um, and so it was a lot of like foundations that came together to show you how to provide therapy, I suppose, would be the best way to put it. Yeah. Did they teach you? Because when I was in therapy, I don't even know if this was therapy. I don't know. I have lots of issues. But at one point, oh, dude. Okay. I, <laughs> at one point, I was told to write down everything I ate. Sure. So do you have like, was it a class that just taught you about all the different like paperwork that you could send home with people and just like coping mechanisms? Was that like a class or did you learn that once you got into a job? Um, I would say yes to both. Um, we had a, what was called a skills class where we got to practice a lot of that. And we got to actually practice providing therapy, um, initially with each other. And then, um, at NIU specifically, there's a, the counseling, it's called the CCTC, the counseling. Ooh, I know what you're talking about. Cause that's where yeah. I went. <laughs> yes. So the CCTC has counselors in training and then PhD level clinicians in training. Um, and so we got to practice there with real clients, um, you know, students at NIU and then the surrounding community. Um, and then, but I will say, you know, one of the things that just like medicine, again, we should be lifelong learners. And so it, the learning doesn't ever stop, even though school has stopped. I think I've learned, even though I learned a lot, like while I was in school, I've learned even more from my peers. Um, you know, every, all of my therapist peers bring a lot to the table in terms of their you know, personal modalities in terms of their personal experiences. And so I think the learning has continued through use of like peer collaboration. How do you guys do that if there's confidentiality? Like you just have to be very vague with what situations you're hearing about? Sure. Um, typically it happens within an organization. And so when I say that, I mean like my coworkers. Um, when people are signing intake forms, you're signing for our organization so that we can do that. Mm, okay um it would be different if I was talking with like you know like a friend who was also a therapist like that would not be very ethical but because we're internally talking as co-workers that's ethical because they've signed um they've signed the paperwork to say that we can talk with each other because we're internal um okay. it's the same thing with our medical provider that's why we can talk with each other without having to have them sign additional consents mm -hmm. um, yeah. I will say though I have had experiences um where I do talk with people's uh outpatient therapists because you know I'm at level two now mm -hmm. um and so they have to sign a release of information to allow me to talk to their therapist 
Um, most of them do, some of them don't. Again, it's at your kind of own discretion. Um, I think for me, it helps me get a history, right? You've seen your outpatient therapist for, you know, how, however many years. Um, they have way better insight on you than I do. And so I think it very much helps me um, get a better insight. And then as they're transitioning out and going back to their outpatient provider, um, I can fill them in on what's happened. Mm-hmm. Do you record your sessions? I do not. Um, we did that when we were still in training just for review, but I don't record them now. Um, I think that I don't really think many people do. You don't think it's beneficial? I think that it could be because then you'd want, you can review and like verbatim discuss kind of what happened. Um, and I also think that there's a little bit of a risk in doing that because people sometimes freak out when they're recorded. Mm. And so some of the work that we do, especially like trauma work, um, there's a little bit of a, a like butts heads a little bit because they're not always willing to be as open if they know they're going to be recorded. Yeah, I feel like it's hard enough to even talk about it the first time. What do you want to listen to it back for, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, I will say, though, what a lot of what we use, I think, um, for like peer supervision to collaborate with each other is our notes. And so we do have to like document our conversations um, for insurance purposes primarily, but also because we want to keep track of what our clients are talking about. And so that we can reference. And so that's a little more useful, I would say, because we're documenting after we have the conversation. And so they don't have to worry about like me, you know, writing in front of them mm -hmm. um, or like being recorded. I had someone do that to me one time and I knew what they were doing. Like, I know it was just for like documenting purposes, but I was like so paranoid. I was like, cause they weren't doing it with everything I said. It was like one specific thing I said. And I was like, Oh man, I just messed up. They're going yeah. to send me somewhere. you know. <laughs> and, and that's a, that's a real fear, right? Because it that's natural to work. Like, what are you writing down? Like that's so natural <laughs> to do. And so some therapists that you see will do that in front of you. And it's very dependent on who you're seeing. Um, and it's very much a personal preference. Um, I personally don't do that because of that exact reason, especially working with scenes like it's already scary coming here. Um, and I don't want to give them any reason to like limit themselves in terms of what they're disclosing. What do you do when a teen is being closed off, especially within the first few sessions? Sure. Um, my personal approach is to do a lot um, more informal stuff before we get to the deeper stuff. You can't really dive right into the deeper stuff because then they're going to be closed off. Um, and so I do a lot of really getting to know you. What do you like? What brought you here? Um, what are your goals? Um, tell me about yourself. Right. And so I do a lot more of informal, like getting to know you to build that rapport um, and the trust so that they can get to a point where they're comfortable telling you those deeper things. Mm -hmm. do you ever mm, with my job when certain things happen I just feel like very fulfilled and like I'm like making a difference mm -hmm. do you get that feeling or is there like a certain thing that someone can say to you for you to get that feeling mm. there's a lot of things that people can say to me to get that feeling and I have had that feeling a lot of times, which I think is a really big driving force to continue in this field. Um, I mean, it very much depends on the context, but 
it really boils down to progress, right? Like when people will say that you helped me in X, Y, Z way. Um, and especially now because I'm working with teens, parents too, right? Um, my favorite word, Mariana, is Sonder. And Sonder means that like people live very complex lives, just like you without your knowledge, right? And so you only know a small portion of what people are doing um, only while you're interacting with them or only when you're talking with them. And you see, you don't see rather um, a large portion of what they're doing outside of when you're seeing them, right? And so like for me, I spend a good chunk of time with my clients, right? I mean, we're talking three, six, 12, like 13 to 14 hours with them a week. Um, but there's so many hours in the day where I don't see them. I don't see how they act at home. And so I say that because it's especially helpful when like in this role, particularly when parents are like, I see such a change. Like, you know, before my kid used to you know scream and shout. And then like last night, my kid asked to take a break and like pause the conversation, like little things like that. I'm like, great. I know that I'm doing a great job, but also you're making progress, right? Like you're implementing the things that we're talking about. And so I think any like verbalization of progress um, is really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. That's nice. That, I don't know. I would yeah, really like And to be fair, unfortunately, not every story ends well, but the stories that do end well feel really good. Mm-hmm. I just put two and two together. You're meet- Are you in meeting in groups or they're one-on-one? So I do groups and individual sessions. The further up in level of care you go, the more group oriented you get because um, they're often like very acute. And so you just kind of have to, for volume, um, meet in groups. So what are your hours? If you're meeting with, at least for the individual people, you're meeting with them like three hours a day. And if it's after school, so you have like, what do you started like three and then what time do you end so I do 11 to 7 um typically in the morning I do like all my administrative work um like I'll do the notes from the night before or I'll like follow up on phone calls with parents or I'll plan my group out um and then in the afternoon is the actual therapy work and so my group goes um from four to seven and then usually like two and three o'clock is when my individuals are just because they're in school um summer is a little more flexible if they're not in school I can do like during the day um but typically like two and three I'll slide two individual slots in there and then do the three hours group right after how many do you have um our program specifically goes up to 12 um I don't have 12 right now but our max is 12 and the further up you go the smaller they get like when I was in residential the max was four for therapists on their caseload um an outpatient which is the lowest level of care typically people have between 25 and 30 is that beneficial how do you i mean well, after, after time you get to know all of them but in the sure. beginning how do you remember the issues is issues the right word what what should i be saying experiences maybe okay <laughs> experiences how do you remember all of their experiences um, part of it is the notes. That's why documentation is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a little easier when you have less people in terms of like remembering, because if I only have four people, then I only have, you know, four people's things, four people's yeah. experience I need to remember. Um, but like when I was an outpatient, um, my notes, I had to like reference my notes because I, there was no way to remember what we talked about last week when I saw, you know, 29 other people that week. Yeah. That's um, kind of Documentation is important. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. 
such as the field. (laughs) (laughs) So you could, you would have 12 people at one time or you would split that with other counselors. So right now I would have 12, up to 12 people in a group. Yes. Wow. Which it can get really hectic sometimes for sure. Um, That's, I would say like why boundaries are so important. Um, Boundaries. And like, even though it makes little, little sense because they're kind of opposite ideas, boundaries and flexibility. Mm -hmm. um, Because they have to feel empowered to like be here and they have to feel interested in whatever's going on in that day. Um, I'm able to hold boundaries in a way I have people tell me all the time, like, you're so nice. I can't say no to you. And I'm like, whatever works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but also like the flexibility comes in terms of engagement, right? So like, I always come with, you know, two or three different things I can talk about. But before we start group, I'm always like, what's on your mind? It's like, is there anything that's, you know, happened today or this week that you guys want to talk about? Is there anything that you're seeing, you know, in life, in your school and the news that you guys want to talk about? Because I'd much rather you know, talk about like social media, if that's what's on your mind versus depression, because I want you to get more out of it. And I think that the cool part about group is that when the conversation flows, it flows. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you you find that people are more to themselves in the group setting? At first, but uh, typically as they become a part of like what is called the milieu um, which is really just a fancy way to say like a part of the group mm-hmm. um usually they talk more and sometimes I mean I think that's part of my job too sometimes I have to be like hey so-and-so like you've been really quiet like what do you think about this um it. I would say that's part of my job yeah, as a facilitator mm, I would be mad at you you, you have to do it in a gentle way. And I do get pushed back all the time and mm-hmm. you have to kind of pick and choose your battles. Right. Sometimes I'll be like, okay, like we'll come back to you. Or sometimes I'll be like, I really want you to talk about this. Like I'm going to challenge you to answer this question or explore what's going on in your mind. Like, even if it's not related, like you have to give me something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a fine balance line to walk, but I think that's why the rapport is so important because when you build that rapport and that, re- that trust, I can challenge you like that. Mm-hmm. So you meet with them singly first before like a group setting, like when they first start. Typically, no. No. Yes. So typically for my organization right now, typically what happens is they come and they we have a separate person who just does assessments. Um, so they do their assessment and then they usually hop right into group. And so usually a lot of times I'll try like before group, if I run into the family, you know, I'll be like, hey, do you guys have any questions? I'll introduce myself. But typically I am not able to do an individual session before group just because that's how my organization is structured. Um, but I make sure to schedule that like immediately because I think that's such an important part of the process. I think it can be really scary coming into a group of 11 other people. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I try and get that individual in there like pretty quickly. Same same week for sure, like the next few days if if time allows. Yeah, I would want to meet with you first so that way I could be comfortable around you before I go talk in front of a bunch of strangers, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it's easier because they're around the same age, but still that's scary. And it, it is scary. You'd be surprised at how quick people bond though. Mm-hmm. I think I like to talk. So I think I'd be okay. But I could, like, some people that I'm thinking of, they're more shy. So I don't think that they would like the specific order that your or um, your company does it. But 
And it, it depends, right? Like group is not for everyone. I think some people will do better on group and some people do better in individual sessions. Um, it's a conversation I always have with my coworkers. Some people just do better in one or the other. How do you... Mentally, do you think about work when you're off? Do you let that affect your personal life? Like the things that you're hearing and like learning from your patients, do you let that affect you? I do my best not to let it affect me. And I don't think, at least not yet, hopefully never, it's gotten to the point where like I can't function outside. It has not gotten to the point. Hopefully it won't get there. Um, I will say in terms of like thinking about it, I often do. Um for better or for worse, this field is is a people field. And so even though you're gone, like from my group, your life still goes on, right? Like, so like if you had a rough day, you know, or if like there was an argument within the family, like I do think about that because even though I'm done working with you for the day, those conversations still continue at home. Um and so I, I do think about them often, but I, I will say I've learned really well to, one, like use my team as a support, right? Like when I'm not available, someone else is. Two, I do a lot of work on the front end in terms of crisis, um, because at this level, we're not like a crisis facility. And so I do some of that work on the front end to say like, hey, you know, this is not a 24-hour facility. You know, I would love to be there for you 24-7, but like, that's not our role, right? And so here are some resources that you can use if you do need crisis work after hours or if there is something that is going on that you really need to talk to someone about and I'm not available. Um, and I always make sure to provide what is called like psychoeducation, really just education, you know, about psychology, therapy, counseling, um, to say that like if that is something that you need, you know, like every day, maybe you need a higher level of care, right? If you're going crisis through crisis through crisis every day every day every day like maybe you need you know partial hospitalization or residential or hospitalization and so part of that is I would say like continuing to assess and providing the tools you know on the front end of things so you don't give them like your cell phone number to be able to contact you on like weekends or something we have so we at this organization specifically we have um like virtual numbers and so I have gotten like texts over the weekend um I do my best not to respond <laughs> and I'm pretty good about it now I learned a lot housing taught me a lot for sure housing yeah. taught me a lot <laughs> um I do my best not to respond and it's it's I've gotten a lot better about it over the years and again like if they're in full-on crisis mode like maybe that might mean a trip to the hospital and so even in the situations where I've, I have responded like over the weekend or in an evening, you know, I always make sure to reiterate the crisis resources that are available. Um, or I say like, hey, especially to like the parents of like, hey, if this is going on, like maybe that warrants a trip to the hospital and mm -hmm. then I can follow up in the morning with you. Mm -hmm. You don't think that makes them not trust you? Well, not trust isn't the right word, but like they don't see you as unreliable then? No, to my knowledge, no. And maybe that is a feeling that they are having, but to my knowledge, no, because I think I do that work on the front end. And I think part of that comes with like the explanation to say, like, hey, again, if you are having consistent crisis, like that means you need to be monitored 24-7. Um, and 
you know, unfortunately, we're not the place for you, but we can help you get to that place, right? Like maybe that means you need residential level of care where you have someone there all night to watch you and you have a nurse all night to like give you your medicine when you need it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of that, part of that is on the forefront. Now that you're saying it, yes, kids especially. Because <laughs> like, I, I, was, I wasn't trying to throw you under the bus. No, 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 no. I, I get it. But like, now that I'm thinking about it, I don't, and I don't even know if a trust is the right word, but like aversion, the kids that I've worked with have an aversion to like the hospital and residential. Um, and it's something that frustrates me a little bit because I understand that you don't want to be away from home. I understand how, how that can be scary, but I always compare it to like a medical situation. Like if you cut off your leg, like you're going to go to the emergency room, right? Like you're not going to sit at home and be like, maybe it'll, maybe it'll (laughs) fix itself. Like the hospital is there for a reason, right? And it's the same yeah. thing. It's a level of care, right? You have like the emergency room and you have urgent care and you have your regular doctor. And sometimes things are appropriate for your regular doctor. Like sometimes you can make an appointment for tomorrow or next week. And sometimes you need to go to urgent care when it's like, you need it now, but it's not that serious. And sometimes you need to go to the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know why, but like I have difficulties in getting that message across that this is not like a punishment or a consequence but it's a tool to help you that you need in this moment Mm -hmm. I get you I think you should stay ignoring them you know like like, yes exactly because you have your own life you know yes 1000% and I think that 12 is not a lot of people but like 12 people that are rotating in crisis can be a lot for me and I think that is how in our field we have to avoid burnout what kind of continuing education do you have? Ah, so we have to do continuing education credits every two years. Um, there's a lot of freedom in how we do it at this level. Um, my first year, I didn't need any. I still took some like continuing education credits, um, but I didn't need any my first time around because it was like my first renewal, which was great because I applied for my license and then they had me renew it three months later. Um, love IDFPR, which is the licensing board. Um, but every two years is the license renewal. And so in those two years, I think you need, I feel like I should Google it just to be sure, but I feel like you need 30 continuing education credits. I trust you. Do I trust myself? You Google it. (laughs) Yes. 30. 30 years. Nope, not 30 years. 30 hours hours. of continuing education credit every two years. I don't know why I said years. Um, And then just so you're aware, right, um, in counseling, you have two licenses. In social work, you also have two licenses. I'm not sure about LMFT, but in counseling, specifically in social work, you have two licenses. You have your first license, which is a provisional license, which is the LPC, which I have right now. When you have your provisional license, you have to work under someone that is fully licensed. Um, After you work about two years um, and after you work, uh, it's like 3,360 hours, um, then you can apply to take your second license exam. And so I'm due for that uh, this upcoming year. Um, It's more acronyms, the NCMHE which is the license, the exam. And then once I pass that, 
I get what is called the LCPC, which is Licensed Clinical Professional Counselor. Is there like a class you need to take or you just take the test? I take the test. I take the test and then I pass. And then once that happens, I can work on my own. I don't have to have someone like sign off on my notes. I can like open a private practice if I wanted. Um, and so that's the unrestricted full license. Would you want to have your own practice? Yes and no. And I've, I've thought about that a lot. And I think it kind of ties into like me maybe going back to school because then I could do like both the medicine side of things and the talk therapy side of things. Mm -hmm. And I can do it literally, you know, how I want to do it. Um, but there are a lot of logistics in opening your own practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if that's something that I'd want to do now. I think down the road for sure. Um, but I don't know if that's something I want to do early on because then you got to focus on like business development and like getting paneled with insurance companies mm -hmm. and marketing. It's like starting your own business, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's a lot that goes into that. And a lot of people do it. A lot of people are successful, um, but it's a lot of work that goes into it. And so I think down the road, yes. Um, right now, I'm not so sure. You let me know when you do that. I will. I vibe with um, you. So you can be my counselor. I'll come to yeah. you. And I'll even pay you under the table. So we don't even have to get insurance involved. You just name your price, you know? Well, and so, yeah, some people do out of pocket too, which that's yeah. a, that's a thing that people do. Oh, it's not called under the table? <laughs> no, out of pocket. Yeah. So people do out of pocket payments. The, depending on how you look at it, the issue with that is that if you are paying out of pocket, typically you're getting a certain population. Um which is fine for a lot of people, um, but typically you're getting the, you know, the population that is more financially well off. Um, typically you're not getting, you know, people that are super diverse, you know, are always getting people of color. Um, and so if I were to start a private practice, I would definitely want to do um, like underrepresented minority populations. And so I would have to do like the insurance handling or do some type of like sliding scale. Mm -hmm. I'm black. So I fall. <laughs> <Sure> <laughs> do. I'll let you know down the road. Yeah, let me know. I need it. And we all do. I think that even if you don't have like anxiety or depression, like, everybody should go to therapy because you can process things that happen to you, you know, that are not as wild as someone with like severe depression. Like mm -hmm. you had a bad day. Let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. You have, you know, a serious conversation coming up. Like, let's talk about it. How are you going to do that? I think that counseling is such a, I was going to use the word weird, but that's not the word I'm going to use. Counseling is such a unique space where like, you're not judged about talking about whatever you want to talk about. And you have someone who's ideally not biased to your situation, can give you a fresh perspective. I mean, like, even if you don't have, you know, a disorder like a clinical disorder I think counseling is so useful for that mm -hmm. what is your favorite part about your job I think that my favorite part of the job is getting to particularly with people of color and the LGBT community I think getting to be someone that looks like them um I think that I'm not sure how aware you are but like counseling as a as a field therapist there's not a lot of diversity um and so i think i'm definitely a minority in terms of the field um for a couple of different reasons but i think 
that's great for me. I always use that as a strength because that means I get to relate to you in the way that someone else didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, we know that like fit for therapists is really important. And so if you happen to be, for example, you know, a black teenager going to a therapist who's not black, maybe they won't understand your lived experience. Maybe they're not understanding your culture and, you know, why you need to ask your family to weigh in on all your decisions or like why family is such an important consideration when you're making decisions like that is a really important piece in therapy and it puts a lot of things into perspective and so I'm happy to be the person that can hopefully understand that or hopefully resonate with that Mm -hmm. what's your least favorite (sighs) when things don't go very well Mm -hmm. I think that and we talked a little bit about it earlier Mariana but um And whether any level of care you're at, like to participate in therapy, you have to be willing to do that, right? You have to be willing to come and lower your guard and talk about things that you maybe normally wouldn't talk about with anything else or with anyone else, Um, which I understand can be scary. um, But I can talk to you all day. I can give you all the tools. But if you're not willing to take them and like push yourself to do more each day, then we're not going to get anywhere, right? It's like, I can't do all the work for you. It really has to be a compromise and we both have to work toward your common goal as a client. Yeah. Um, and so my least favorite part is when I see people that have such opportunity for growth and improvement um, that are not ready to take that step. I think I was like, when you're saying that, I was like, oh, that's me. Because not not the talking part, I had no problem like opening up to my therapist at the time about things, but I just was so bad at doing those like any homework assignments she would give me, like the food sheet. I never did that. And it was partially like I wasn't eating, which was like part of the problem. But then even when I did eat, I would forget to fill that out and then I would forget what I was eating. So I was probably like upsetting her when by not doing that but I just I didn't like those homework sheets I can never remember to do it and I was already so busy and so I apologize to all the people that I upset but it's a commitment and I'm sure I'm sure that you felt like you were upsetting her but it probably was not upsetting because I can tell you that happens to me all the time and I don't get upset um but I my goal like is like what went wrong? Why didn't you do that? Like, how can I help you bridge that gap? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not, at least personally, like it's not an anger or an irritation or a judgment even. It's a, maybe like a curiosity would be better. Like mm-hmm. what went wrong in that moment where you weren't able to do that? And like, how can I get you to that point? Mm-hmm. I have one more question. Oh, yes. I will also add because therapy unfortunately is a business I also my, one of my least favorite parts is that when people are not able to get the services they need that's not very fun um just like we talked about like the out-of-pocket thing um like that's great for us as clinicians because we get to make more money um and lord knows that oftentimes we're underpaid um but then it's like are we really serving the people that need it um And I even hesitate to say that, right, because like people need it regardless, but like people that maybe don't have as much access would be a better way to phrase it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's sad, too, because I've seen plenty of people who like my, for example, my last job was Medicaid. um, And so like I've seen people who let let their Medicaid lapse. And so now you don't have insurance and now I can't serve you, even though we were making great progress. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's an unfortunate part, too. 
send them to me. I'm not licensed. I won't make them pay me. I'm not going to be good at all. I'm like delusional. You know, have you seen that TikTok trend, like being delusional? <laughs> That's me. So I would give you literally the worst advice, but I would give you a space to vent. And if that's all you need, just send it. And to be honest, like sometimes people really just need to vent. And that's why I said earlier, like you don't have to have like a clinical diagnosis to go to counseling. Like sometimes really people just need to vent and process what happened, you know, last week. Mm -hmm. Um, Or sometimes people need to vent or process like what's coming up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I would be good in in that aspect. But giving actual good advice, I'm not your person, you know. And to be fair, Ariana, I feel like my role is less about giving advice and more about helping you figure out what would be best. Yeah, I couldn't do that either, though. And it's tricky. It's tricky, especially like it's tricky because sometimes you find yourself wanting to give advice, like especially like with substance use. I find myself all the time going. Well, of course, just don't use, like find something else to do, but it's oftentimes not as easy as that. And you really, that's part of why you have to let people come to their own conclusions and really talk about like how they want to get there and what they want. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't. It's tricky, but it's fun. It keeps things fresh. Yeah. Um, I have two questions left. I know we're a little over, so I'm sorry. No rush. Don't don't rush at all. Um, Do you find yourself being a therapist for your friends like either when they're asking if they could just like rant to you or like even if it's just like unsolicited you're like hmm well maybe you should try doing this do you find yourself doing that yes and I don't mean to um I tell people all the time like I'm not your therapist like I'm your friend or like I'm not your therapist you know I'm your your cousin I'm your family member and it's like I can still be there for you without being a therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think those are very different things, right? Like my role as a therapist is not to like judge you. It's to be as non-biased as possible. And that doesn't always come into play when you're dealing with like friends or family, Mm -hmm. right? Like I like to think that my relationships are pretty close with my friends and family. And so I can still be there to support you. But like the difference is maybe sometimes I tell you you were wrong in that situation or like maybe I am giving advice, right? Like my role as a therapist is to not give advice, but maybe in that situation I'm saying, well, I think that this is best for you. Or I think that this is maybe the route we should go. That's not always what I, well, I shouldn't be doing that at all as a therapist, but I can do that as like a friend or a family member. Yeah. Um, But I will say I do find, and even before, and maybe that's kind of how I got into the field too, um, I feel like I've just always been the person that people come to for advice or like to console or process things. Um, And again, I can still do that like without being your therapist. I can do that as your family member, as your friend. But I definitely find myself being that support very often outside of my job. Yeah, I'm I'm one of those people that use what my friends do, like, in their career like I have a friend who's going to PT school best believe when she's got her doctorate I'm going to her for all my medical questions I will never go to a doctor's office ever again like what the heck One thousand percent yeah we've got a we've got a nurse practitioner in the family I call her all the time like hey I have a medical question yeah what what's the point of being friends with you if you're not going to give me medical help what the heck one thousand percent yeah um okay my last question is not really a question but more of like an open thing to you do you have anything that you want to talk about or bring up that I didn't already ask you about? Mm-hmm. That is a good one. I would say 
that's a good one. I don't know, Mariana. I would say that for me, the diversity piece is really important. I feel like I'm very proud to be a diverse clinician who holds, or rather a clinician who holds multiple diverse identities. I think that it's something that, you know, again, we don't often find, and I'm happy to be that person. Um, I think that one of the things that I was really worried about, because I went from a public organization to a private institution, was that I would get a lot of the like, privileged clients, which, you know, are still in need, but those are not the clients that I wanted to work with only. Um, and I've been pleasantly surprised to get a lot of diverse clients, um, you know, from race, um, from sexual orientation, um, from gender, um, you know, even past just like male identifying, female identifying clients. I've, you know, gotten to work with a lot of different populations. And I think that there's there's a need for that because, again, we've got a lot of clinicians in the field who are really homogenous in terms of identity um and it doesn't always work because of the fit mm -hmm. and so I'm super happy to be the person that uses their identities to counsel and I would really encourage people to consider the field I think that it definitely comes with its challenges but it's so rewarding to hear you know things like I didn't do this because I remembered our conversation or, you know, my kid has been so different since he started seeing you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, it's so powerful to know that I have the ability to affect change because I think that's such a rare thing to have, let alone for that to be your job. Mm -hmm. um, I love it. Yeah. As a black person, I appreciate you in that field. Thank you. We are very far and few in between. Like, even when I was looking for my own counselor, like, so far and few in between. And then the ones that you do find booked because they're so popular. People want people that look like them or that resonate with their lived experiences. And so I'm happy to be that person. Yeah. I'm happy that you're that person. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for coming on my podcast. Of course, Miss Mariana. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and share your experiences. Of course. Thank you for listening to this episode of Young or Dumb. I hope you enjoyed the subject and learned something new. Make sure to follow my podcast for more interesting conversations. And remember, be happy and be chill.